Welcome to another episode of the Let's Sip podcast. I'm your host, Brandon E. Gaylor. Now it's a few days after Halloween, so I've been eating my fair share of candy, probably too much candy. Could not resist the after Halloween sales at the store, so between 50% off and up to 70% off, I had to grab myself a couple bags of my favorites. So I've been polishing off way too much candy in the past few days, but I have very low willpower, so what can I say? Perhaps some of you out there are feeling the same. Now in the past couple years, I have increased my reading tremendously. I've been reading a lot more than I have in years past trying to get through uh, as many books as I can within a year's time, trying to average around one book a week. I did uh, pretty close to hitting that last year, a little off on the target this year. I've been keeping track of the books I read, but um, I'm just trying to read as much as I can, try to broaden my horizons, get a little more knowledge uh, every now and then. And one area where I'm not very well versed in is history. I don't read a lot about history. I'm not a big history book guy. I just find them to be a little boring for my liking. However, I know it's an area I need to improve on. I should broaden my horizons when it comes to history a little bit. So I've been trying to make an effort. And one area I've definitely wanted to do or read more about was the history of beer, of course, and the history of beer in the United States. And it just so happens there is a great book for that particular goal. It's called Ambitious Brew, The Story of American Beer by Maureen Ogle. Probably about 75% of the way through the book, and it kind of starts the history of beer from the point where it kind of became more popular or or breweries started popping up like the first breweries in America all the way up to relatively close to the current state of affairs with microbreweries and things like that. One of the interesting stories I found while reading the book, one of the things that surprised me was the history and the time frame between when the craft brewery explosion started to happen, which maybe you could arguably say was around within the last decade. Of course, there was been uh, craft breweries around for a while. Places like Sierra Nevada and others have been around 30 years or some 20 years. So there's been plenty of breweries. The West Coast has had a decent amount of local breweries and brew pubs for a long time. But the uh, the current trend of the uh, big explosion of new breweries and the popularity has definitely stepped up within the last decade. But... It feels like after Prohibition happened that there just wasn't a lot of breweries in the United States, or that was kind of the assumption that Prohibition kind of drove out all of the breweries and forced them to uh, close their doors and go out of business. 
Well, it's safe to say that prohibition probably had a little bit of an effect, but it's not the entire story either. There were other factors that played a role in breweries closing. One of the factors that doesn't really come to mind or is kind of surprising because it's not something that you would think about, but just America's tastes in general and how they change over the decades definitely had a factor on the number of breweries that were producing beer. For instance, when food innovations came around, we started seeing things like instant potatoes and new way of preserving food, new way of cooking methods. That led to an increase of blander food with a little bit less flavor, and Americans naturally developed a taste for a blander style of food with all of these new products coming out. And that taste actually translated over to the beer side. So while they may have been um, looking for like an import or something a little more flavorful, from, if, they, if they didn't have a local brewery and all they had was what they could find at the grocery store, they might have switched from going from an import back to a light beer or something lighter that the American style brewery or the American brewery would offer. Also, just different trends in alcoholic beverages played a factor. At points, liquor became popular. At other times, wine was the alcoholic beverage of choice. And this affected the sales of beer as well. Uh, when the diet craze and uh, people became more health conscious, when those periods came through, beer took a hit for sure. And another interesting factor that definitely led to a decrease in the number of breweries after prohibition was repealed with the 21st Amendment was a trend of breweries either purchasing other breweries or merging together with existing breweries. And they did this to try to compete with the big guys. The big guys had big sales, they had a lot of capital, so they could afford to expand production, add on to their plants, or buy other buildings or buy up brewery assets for breweries that went out of business. The smaller guys didn't have the buying power to do this, so they would decide to band together with other breweries to try to compete against the bigger guys. And this had a relatively moderate effect on the number of breweries decreasing. When all of these breweries started merging, merging together, because for every merger, you lost one brewery, of course. And that is very similar to the trend you see in business and capitalism nowadays. If you're not the market leader in your area, you are looking to potentially purchase another company that might give you the assets or the knowledge or the IP that's going to get you to number one, or at least give you a better shot at competing. So mergers and acquisitions are nothing new, and um, they were just as prevalent back in the day as they are now. This also speaks to the cyclical nature of history. Nowadays, we are seeing a little bit more mergers and acquisitions as well. 
Uh, AB InBev is purchasing up craft breweries. And then you see an outfit like Canarchy, which is basically Oscar Blues, Perrin, and Cigar City coming together to try to compete against the bigger guys or have a better uh, foothold in the industry. And due to the volume of breweries that we have now, it's hard to say how that trend competes with the trend that was ongoing after Prohibition. But if we start seeing a huge increase of breweries coming together, merging, or if bigger breweries start buying up a lot more craft breweries, of course we're going to see a decline in the number of breweries overall as it is. This also adds to the story of, uh, you know, as craft, as craft beer reached its peak or, um, you know, is interest starting to decline or is demand starting to decline? That is the, of course, the big story now, the popular story in this day and age. And mergers and acquisitions will definitely have its place in this story because it's going to contribute to a decline in the number of breweries. That's not to say that the demand is necessarily going down, but if breweries are coming together to try to grow, get bigger, and uh, get a bigger foothold in the industry, of course that's going to cause a decline in the number of breweries. And uh, if you misread the data on that, it will look like breweries are just closing because demand is going down. This dynamic was uh, especially one of the more interesting ones in the book. Uh, but if you're looking to get a good history of beer in the U.S., I highly recommend reading Ambitious Brew. It's quite interesting and uh, it was nice to know a little bit more about the history and some of the other stuff that I didn't know quite that much about. And America's beer history ties in nicely with our next topic because we're going to be talking about Milwaukee. Now Milwaukee was one of the pioneers in the advent of brewing in the United States. There is a reason why they call it the Brew City. Uh, Schlitz Brewing and Paps Brewing both got their start in Milwaukee. And they were opened even before Miller opened. And Miller, of course, has had its uh, leg in the industry for a long time and is uh, was a Milwaukee-founded or uh, uh, started in Milwaukee. I recently made a venture out to Milwaukee. Uh, I did not go there strictly for the beer. I actually went to see a show, but I knew I wanted to at least try some of the beer while I was out there. I had a small plan of things I wanted to try. It uh, didn't quite work out the way I expected, but I still felt like I had a good time anyhow. I had gotten some advice from a friend who gave me a list of five breweries that he thought I should definitely seek out while I was out there, and I had a plan to at least hit one or two of them. I made a similar journey a couple years ago to see a concert as well, and I did end up getting to go to Lakefront Brewing. I tried some of their beers, 
but I did not end up going on the tour. And that was definitely one of the five that he had on his list that he gave me. Considering it was a weekday, uh, the hours were limited on some of the breweries, so I did have to wait. I had already been to Lakefront, but I ended up going again just because they opened early enough. They also serve food, so I figured I could have some lunch, get my day started there, and wait till some of the other breweries opened up later on in the afternoon to give them a try. Now, the first time I went to Lakefront, I did not take the tour. I just had some of their beers uh, from their tap room, tried some of the stuff that I had not seen in package because they do distribute in several states and they are uh, pretty readily available throughout the Chicagoland area. This time around, I did grab some lunch and then I did go on the tour. The tour seemed to, uh, this tour was incredibly, um, I was it was definitely reasonably priced for the $10. You got a tremendous amount of good beer. Uh, actually, I had probably a little more than my share because I was trying to pace myself a little bit for the other beers and other locations I wanted to go to. But uh, for $10, a good tour and a decent amount of beer, It's a really it was really greatly priced. And they also give you a pint glass that you can keep as a souvenir. I had walking around in places I needed to go, so I didn't get the glass, but uh, all that for 10 bucks was a really, really good deal. They also had some great beer on at the time. They had a uh, hazy IPA, which turned out to be an English-style hazy IPA. I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. It was on their cask. Um, when I asked for that, the gentleman working the bar was hesitant, told me that uh, the beer chips that I got as part of the tour did not count for the that cask IPA. I told him, yeah, no, that was fine. I noted that on the tap list, but I had to have it try anyway, so I just paid for it outright in cash because I had to try that uh, cask IPA for sure. I'm always looking for the stuff that I haven't had before or that I may not get to try again, so I definitely wanted to give that a try. They also had the latest iteration of their My Turn series, which is, um, I don't know the entire history behind it, but I believe the My Turn basically signifies that one of the brewers gets to brew one of their recipes as like a limited packaged release. Uh, the one that they had on at the time was called Wendy. It was a vanilla Doppelbach. It's always nice to see a Doppelbach available somewhere. The vanilla one was pretty good. I'm not a huge vanilla fan. Vanilla in beer is not always my go-to. But uh, this was quite tasty and it worked very nicely with the, um, the heaviness and the maltiness of that Doppelbach. They also had a, a beer to guard that was about 7%. So between that and the Doppelbach... Uh, and during the tour, they actually had on their taps, uh, during the tour, like in one of their back rooms or side areas, they had a couple of taps, and they had their Imperial uh, Barrel-Aged Pumpkin Beer, which is about 13%. So I had uh, 
uh, good share of big, heavy beers, and I was shocked to see that Imperial barrel-aged pumpkin on, so I definitely had to grab some of that during the tour. So after trying all of that stuff, um, I was ready to kind of move on, uh, get a nice walk in me, and look at where I was going to hit next. Now if we jump back to two years prior, when I first came up to Lakefront was in Milwaukee, they actually had an exhibit at their historical society that was all about their brewing history. I was just wandering around waiting for my return bus trip back, so I was just kind of killing time. I did not go in and see the exhibit. But what was nice was that they basically took all the elements of that particular exhibit and incorporated them into what could be a very permanent location attached to a mall-esque area in downtown Milwaukee. And this is called the Brew City Beer Museum. Now the Beer Museum is an interesting concept. They took all of the elements and displays and everything that they had at the historical society and they incorporated this into like kind of a, mu a permanent museum storefront but it also has a bar in there that features a great bottle and can selection and a great tap selection of all local Milwaukee area and surrounding city in Wisconsin breweries. And for $10 admission, you get into the museum and you get a beer. That's an incredibly good deal. Because like, you could easily pay $6, $7 just for the pint of beer. And so for $10, you are getting the admission and a beer. So you're, you're set to go. You can enjoy a nice beer while you're walking around looking at the exhibit. Uh, so it was, a, it was a very interesting concept, something I had not seen before. I talked to the bartender a lot when I was there, but one of the things I did ask her was if they were planning on making that kind of their permanent location. She said that's what they hoped they were going to do. So I, I hope that it works out for them and I hope that they gain the following they need to because it was uh, it's definitely a cool concept and I think uh, it's something that definitely uh, deserves notice and uh, something that could be applied to other cities and things like that as well. So the exhibit was really cool. There was a very old-fashioned bottling line that I thought was really unique, something I had never really seen before. Uh, I took a picture of it. I'll be posting it on the Instagram later. But they had everything from old equipment to um, collections of old bottles. They even had old bottles back when breweries were making cereal beverages and other kind of drinks to try to keep some sort of profitability when prohibition was going on and they couldn't make beer. Of course, they had some hops growing in there, so I got to take a look at those. But it was just nice. To, there was a lot of uh, material and things to read uh, to go through the history of Milwaukee and the beer and everything like that. Not only was it all just strictly beer related, but it talked about the development of the city itself. Uh, you know, when, whether it be roads or train lines or whatever else they needed to be able to transport beer 
all of those elements kind of came together to basically tell a story of a developing city, but surrounding it or using the uh, concept of beer as the jumping off point to tell its story. Plus, I got to drink an IPA from a hyper-local Milwaukee brewery that I'd never had before. So that just made it uh, all the more fun to be able to sip and enjoy a beer while I was walking around looking at the exhibit. Now the craft beer boon has just created, it's just become, it's almost overwhelming, but in a good way. There are so many breweries in the Chicagoland area I've not even been to yet just because there's been so much growth and so many new ones opening, I just can't keep up. And if you're gonna talk about any other city, I'm definitely way outside of the loop. So as I mentioned, I had a list of like five breweries that, you know, they were recommended I should check out. Well, it turns out that the Milwaukee area has now like 40 breweries and brew pubs. So I was really, I was like way off. Uh, Milwaukee has definitely exploded when it comes, has come to its microbrewery scene and its craft beer scene, even in the last couple of years, probably. So my five was just small potatoes compared to how much the beer scene has grown in Milwaukee alone. So it was nice to be able to, uh, the bartender at this, at uh, Brew City, was very knowledgeable about the beer. Um, you could tell she was passionate about it. She knew her stuff. So it was definitely nice to get to talk to her and learn a little bit more of the beer scene and everything like that. I'm not really going to name any of the other four breweries just because I'll tell you right now, uh, spoiler alert, I never made it to any other brewery. I ended up going to the, the bar at the Brew City, just hanging out there until I had to go see my show. I realized I was in way over my head. There was way more to see and beer to have than I could ever possibly have even imagined. And I knew I'd probably only hit like one other brewery anyhow before I had to go to my show. And right here, I had a bar with a knowledgeable bartender who knew the local beer scene, a uh, great tap list, stuff I never had, bottles and cans that I've never had. And um, I just ended up staying there and drinking there until it was time to go. After I finished my IPA, I asked for a recommendation of what I should potentially try next. And she pointed me to a Lambic. There was a brewery out of Brookfield, which is a town relatively close to Milwaukee, called the Loba, and they actually produced a Lambic in a 16.9 uh, ounce bottle. And it was definitely reasonably priced for a guy who'd spend a decent amount of time uh, drinking in Chicago and in the city. I felt like a uh, Lambic probably from the city would probably cost me probably ten dollars more than what I paid for this particular Lambic at Brew City. But I could not pass up the chance to try a hyper local Lambic and it was delicious. So of course it just kind of went on from there. There was so much to try. 
so much I hadn't seen before, hadn't heard of so many of these breweries. So I just had a few more beers there and I was set for the day. But the moral of the story was the craft beer scene has just exploded in Milwaukee as it has in many other cities across the country. So there's just a lot of exploration to be had, a lot of opportunity out there. But the one thing I learned is that I definitely need to plan better and I need to plan ahead next time to get a better idea of what I'm walking into if I'm looking to explore beer. Like I said, I had alternative motive. It wasn't, I, I wanted to go to the concert more than anything else. But if I'm planning a beer trip, I will be sure to plan ahead. And that goes for any city where I might be going to travel and check out the beer scene for sure. What also was really cool was that Brew City had this little pamphlet and a brewery map which kind of laid out all the different breweries that are throughout Milwaukee and the surrounding cities. So that was really cool as well. So I definitely have a head start on my research for next time I want to make a trip to Milwaukee. Now this has been a historic episode so far, but only due to the fact that we've really just been talking about beer history. But this last segment is going to be no exception. When I was at Bruce City, one of the concepts that I came across that uh, was a term I had never heard before, and I never really thought about what was behind it. That term was called coopering. Now, when I think of a keg of beer, I think of a stainless steel, big old heavy barrel, but I never really stopped to consider that, you know, the stainless steel wasn't probably always available and it, you know, I'm sure a machine makes it now, but you know, having a machine to make the barrel, uh, that technology wasn't available and the stainless steel option wasn't available. So what were they using back in the day? Well, they would be using something very similar to what you would see with like a cask, but that's made out of wood. It's essentially a wood barrel. Now with barrels that house spirits and perhaps a stout that's going to sit for a couple of years to uh, become a bourbon barrel aged version of that particular beer, those barrels are plentiful, but these days those are made by a machine. Again, back in the day, they didn't have that kind of technology. So barrels, casks, and even things as simple as a bucket or a pail had to be manually constructed out of wood. In French, the assembly of a barrel is called the mise en rose. I don't know if that's a rose or a rosé. But this process is performed by a cooper. And a cooper is a person who's trained to make these wooden containers. These containers not only housed liquids, but they also housed things like gunpowder or other dry goods, maybe dry food. Now, if they had to transport liquid, then that would be the service of a what they would call a wet or tight cooper. 
because of course the Cooper had to be constructed in a much different fashion to prevent leakage and things like that than it would be perhaps um, a slightly different method for dry goods and things like that. But a Cooper had to go and make these barrels or these kegs by hand. So my first thought was, well, what about all the wood that's kind of curved in shape, you know, on the round part of the barrel? It's like, how did they do that? That must be some sort of complicated process. Well, apparently the timber is heated or steamed to make it pliable, make, make it a little more bendable. But depending on what kind of barrel, what kind of container it was, uh, they also use wooden staves, you know, basically pieces of wood. But these pieces of wood had to be basically manually carved into the round shape to comprise the buckets or the barrel. Talk about a tedious process, tedious and time-consuming task. Every piece of wood had to be shaved off till it got stripped down and became that round shape. And then either a wooden or metal hoop would be used on each end to hold all that wood together and give you the basic structure of your barrel or bucket. And if a cooper had an assistant who was helping out with putting on these wooden or metal hoops, that assistant would be called a hooper. And the English name hooper actually comes from this particular person performing this task. Kind of an interesting uh, trivia, little bit of history for you. There's actually a special hammer called a hooper's hammer because they basically have to pound these metal rings in place and since the metal rings are sitting right up against the wood, you can't get your hammer in there. So their hooper's hammer actually has a little groove, which allows you to tap down that metal and get around the wood, and it's not hitting into the wood when you're trying to tap that metal into place. So those two hoops would basically hold the structure of your barrel. However, that's only getting you halfway there. You still have to provide the top and the bottom for your barrel. And these have to be round. So, remember back in grade school when you had to purchase a protractor, usually one that you probably used for two weeks out of the entire year, or perhaps even a month out of your entire uh, school career? Well, they had to use a similar device to get an estimate of the basic radius of what the top needed to be to fit the barrel. And then they had to cut a piece of wood in a circular shape using a bow saw. So imagine try having to cuts the wood to be perfect to fit inside the bear to fit the top and fit the bottom of this barrel fit tight fit uh, pretty accurately and make a pretty decent solid looking circle out of the wood using nothing more than a bow saw now 
I don't know if I could cut a perfect circle out of construction paper with safety scissors. But these, these people were tasked with cutting this wood with a bow saw in a very much circular fashion. Sounds like it would be a tremendously difficult and arduous task. But they did it. I consider myself to be a little bit of a beer snob, but I think I would have to turn in my card compared to these people back in the day. They went through all of this struggle and all of this manual labor to get their beer packaged and to be able to send it out to bars and share it with the world. I give them all the credit in the world. They were probably far bigger, better beer fans than I would probably ever be. Unfortunately, they didn't even have the selection, variety, and styles that we have nowadays, which is kind of a shame. But there was just an entire aspect of the beer making process that I never really considered, considering that all the technology benefits that are available to us in the time frame we're living in how much diff more difficult it was and how much more lab laborious and time-consuming it was to do things like that back in the day. It's quite, quite amazing. And considering things like we don't even have to wash a keg by hand and try to make sure that we are getting every inch of the keg clean, you can basically stick it on a machine that will pressure wash it inside and out for you. We are so spoiled with the amount of technology we have available to us. And these people were making barrels to transport their beer uh, by hand. It is, uh, it's impressive and uh, commands a new level of respect from myself, for sure. But once again, I do have to give a shout out to Brew City uh, for opening my eyes to this new concept and this new term, Coopering. And um, it just kind of reiterates the fact that Brew City was a great place. If you're ever in Milwaukee, I definitely recommend checking it out. And if I have ever making another return trip up there, uh, that's going to be a guaranteed stop along with any other breweries that I'd like to visit for sure. That will do it for this episode of the Let's Sip podcast. I'm your host, Brandon E. Gaylor podcast theme music composed by Brandon E. Gaylor. Special thanks to Anchor.fm for hosting the podcast. Feel free to follow us on Instagram at Let's Sip Podcast. Thank you very much for sipping with us, and we'll drink with you again next time. Bye-bye.